October 22nd, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 181 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is a saxophone great and a Lower East Side stalwart. He's been in New York a long time. His name is Paul Shapiro. Paul is with us today, and he brought with him a lot of really great stories. Today's a good one. Today on the show, saxophonist Paul Shapiro. Before we get into it, I just want to say thanks to uh, everyone who came out this past Friday to the Demena Center for Classical Music. Brian, Chase, and I played last, so we only got to play for uh, 10 minutes or so, but it was a blast. I don't really get to play in concert halls very often, you dig? Uh, and it was, it was a treat. It was a treat to be able to make music with uh, my great friend in, in a really special, reverberant, and classy place. So thanks for that. Also want to say thanks to everyone who has been contributing to the Patreon. If you enjoy this show and you want to help out, you know, this show does operate on a listener-supported model, kind of like NPR. So if you're digging the show, go to um, patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Become a donor. It helps. Paul Shapiro. Do you guys know Paul? He is uh, originally from Long Island, uh, but has been in New York City, specifically the East Village and Lower East Side, since the late 70s. He plays the shit out of the tenor sax, and he's got um, four records out under his own name on, on the Zodic label, Zorn's label. Uh, and to my years, he has dialed in that sound, that confluence of, of Jewish melodies, uh, with with a sense of jazz that is really tasty. He's worked a lot with Steve Bernstein, and that's certainly something they have in common. He was a founding member of the Brooklyn Funk Essentials. Before that, he had his own band called Foreign Legion. Uh, and he's just a real character. I kind of got to know Paul better uh, a few years ago when I was managing Russ and Daughters, and Paul became the go-to guy to come in for any sort of musical event just because he he gets it. His sound, his world, it's, it's, it's that sound, it's that world. It's this beautiful, you know, to me what the lower side has always been. Uh, it makes perfect sense. And, I, I, and I, I mentioned to Paul today that, you know, I just feel like he's always been here. You know, like at the end of The Shining, you know, what Nick, when the bartender says it to Nicholson, it's like, I kind of feel like Paul's always been in the lower east side. Uh, and, and if you check in with Paul's discography, he's played on hundreds and hundreds of records. Literally. Uh, you know, a lot of... Obviously, you know, the downtown stuff with people like Zorn and, and Steve Bernstein. But you look at his, uh, his discography, and it's, you know, it's Lou Reed, it's Jay-Z, it's um, uh, Michael Jackson, Queen Latifah. Like, it's, it's pretty vast. Jamiroquai, David Byrne. You know, it's, you know he's, he's been on some sessions, man. You probably have some records that uh, Paul's on. You might not even know it. Paul's a great guy. He played on fucking Gerardo. Gerardo, you know, Rico Suave. I don't know if he was on that cut, but I'm just sitting here looking at his discography, and he played on a, a Gerardo record. 
Not bad. Um, if you want to find out more about Paul, go to paulshapiromusic.com. He's great. You're going to hear today that he's a really funny guy uh, with great stories and just a colorful character from uh, around the way. He and I are neighbors. Go to paulshapiromusic.com. Next week, or a week and a half from now, if you're in Paris, if you're around Paris, come check me out. I'll be there playing on Halloween night. It's going to get real spooky. I'll be at Le Vent Célève. Go to the 5049 website for, uh, for more info, but a special Halloween solo concert in Paris. Kind of a dream come true. All right, that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Paul Shapiro. So I got you out of your PJs, didn't I? You did. And you, and you have kids, right? Numerous? Two. Two. So this is this is this is oh, old hand for you. Yeah, no, this is this is my time because I this way I don't we don't have to be rushed because I'm not looking at my wall because I gotta right. pick up my kid. I'm the pickup guy at, at, at three o'clock. Yeah. So if I start something at eleven or eleven thirty and it drifts late and then all of us you know, it starts to be this is this is uh this is the time when I'm uh most the owner of my own time. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely a morning person, but I usually spend the morning. I, I never little... used to be such a morning person, but you know, with kids, a... <laughs> my now, fuck, wait till you got little ones, right? Dogs. Maybe... I have no children. You don't have children yet? No, never. I thought you were. I thought you 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 were into that. You you started that. Uh... Man, you got the wrong cat. No, I thought I, I somehow I thought that you you did. Maybe just because I maybe just because you moved in here, I thought that. No, I moved in here because I got a great deal on this place. I mean, I've been, like I said, out there. I've been in the Lower East Side my entire life. But aren't adult. you married? I'm married, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know. People say to me all the time, like, why did you get married if you're not going to have kids? Are you really not going to have kids? Never. Ah! Well, Are you, you kidding me? You got to know You got to know what you're doing. You, you know, I'm glad you know what you're I doing. I mean, I'll tell you three things, and I said this to my wife just yesterday. One, if I had a daughter, she would be the jappiest, like, shittiest, most entitled girl in the world. <laughs> But two, it's like I grew up with like terribly irresponsible parents. Really? Uh, and I, I, I see the spectrum of, of parents and like what's possible in both directions. And it's like, I, that's not a risk I want to take. Well, that's, I, I, I uh... especially with, by the time we finish this podcast, Brett Kavanaugh will be on the Supreme Court. Wait, when did you move to the Lower East Side? Are you from the Lower East Side? <laughs> no. The honest because answer. I just want to say, there was this moment uh, four or five years ago when you were playing at the Russ and Daughters Cafe. Yeah. And I was watching you, and I was watching you in that space, and I was listening to what you were playing. And it was like that scene in um, in The Shining, the end of the film, where the bartender says to Jack Nicholson, like, you've always been here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, was, I was like, has Shapiro just always been here? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Well, uh, the honest story is that uh, I grew up in uh, Westbury, Long Island, which was a, a, a regular kind of middle class Long Island baby boom type community. And uh, it was pretty boring and regular. And then I went to McGill University in Montreal for four years. Really? Yep, my dad was from Montreal, and uh, I had family up there, and he had gone there, and my sister went there. It was a great university, and uh, 
part of it, to be completely honest, was the fact that my dad, his whole career worked at the United Nations, and they had this thing where if a kid from the United Nations, uh, uh, their one of their parents worked there, then they would subsidize us going to school in a country outside of the U.S. Really? To offset the fact that uh, the United Nations was based in New York. So they wanted to maintain their internationalist quality. And so I had practically a free education. At McGill, which is like the Harvard of Canada. Yeah. So I was able to hit the streets uh, after that with no guilt (laughs) of having... uh, had my family pay huge amounts of money for my education, which was nice because, frankly, I've been a musician ever since, and uh, I never really, I mean, of course, the college experience was good, and I did take a lot, I squeezed a lot of music into an arts program, which is another story. Wait, what did you study at, Miguel? Well, I had to study, I ended up studying film and communications, which was in the English department. That was your major? You had, yeah, it was. Okay. And every year I went back and got uh, them to accept me taking uh, jazz improvisation. I took three years of jazz improvisation. I took a year of theory. I took a year of... I even got practical saxophone lessons accepted in the arts field. I basically did an interdisciplinary major. And it, it was before they had a jazz program there. Now you get a doctorate of jazz. Before it was strictly uh, sort of a, a, an extra class that you know, there was no degree attached uh-huh. to it. But there was a great teacher. His name was Art Meisty. And he was, uh, uh, he had made jazz records for uh, for Canadian Broadcasting Company, CBC, or whatever they call it up there. And uh, he really, he had a record called Jazz Styles, you know, because he could really play uh, ragtime, and he could play bebop, and he, he could play like player? Herbie. No, he was a, a piano player. Piano player. And he was in the uh, Montreal Symphony Orchestra, too. He was kind of a, a an amazing guy. So at, that was one shining light that I had a good jazz studies teacher up there, you know. But um, anyway, so I hit the, I hit the ground running uh, after college, and I moved. Uh, I was lucky enough, my sister found me. She lived in New York already. She found me. A, an illegal sublet on East 10th Street <laughs> between 1st and 2nd <laughs> Avenue. What, what year was this? 78. East 10th Street between 1st and 2nd? Yeah. I mean, that was... It was it was, it was was funky, but it, it, it was funky. Wait, but you, then... The movie Taxi Driver, by the way, the end of the film, when, uh, uh, when De Niro shoots all the guys in the flop house, that's 10th Street. I'm not sure what block it was. I'm not sure what block, but that is East 10th Street. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't... We had the... the, um, You know, the deli was on the corner. The uh, 2nd Avenue deli was was on 2nd and 10th. And uh, I lived there for a year. And then some friends of mine uh, that I I knew from Westbury had gone to uh, Brockport in southern Illinois. And they were uh, actors and uh, screenplay writers and stuff. And they... They had found a building over on 12th Street and Avenue A. And uh, then I moved in there with them after I got booted out of my illegal sublet. Almost lost the sublet for the people that I was living that that owned it. Uh, not owned it, but were, you know, had right. the, uh, the rent-stabilized lease, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, then I lived there uh, uh, until 1985 when... 
as I told you, I, I moved down to Ludlow Street because I, I collected a family piano and I needed to find an apartment for my piano, as we say, instead of a piano for my apartment. But what I will say is it was very funky down there. It, that was 12th and A. That was rough, man. That was a rough neighborhood. It was even rougher than, than 10th between 1st and 2nd. And it was there was very little... Uh, good to to think there was you know stuff that was it was just junkies only yeah man and, you know it had this underbelly of italian funeral homes from when they were there right. and, and then there was the, the the next crew that came in the drugs there was there was well, let you me, know let me ask you real fast and I, i've 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 bitched about this a lot uh this this thing where like people that are infiltrating the lower east side in east village now and for the last uh you know really last five to ten years who arrive in the neighborhood with seemingly no understanding or appreciation of what was here before uh which is many things um when you arrive in the east village in lower east side in 1978 it was still uh, i mean you could just stand anywhere and you could see hebrew signs you could see the Puerto Rican and Dominican culture. The, all the remnants were pretty out in the open. And when you arrived here, was that all like immediately apparent to you? Uh, sure. Uh, my favorite is where I live now on East Broadway. I mean, there literally is the Hebrew, Dominican, Chinese, all still right on top of each other. But, I mean, the neighborhood really... Uh, had not started to change that much then. And, I mean, it was a very, very fun time to be there. It was it was rough and tumble, but, I mean, I explain this to people sometimes. Uh, there were lots of spaces, like uh, sub-basements, you know, where you walk down from the street. This was especially true of Ludlow as well, yeah. like when I was down there. But all over that neighborhood, people... Young kids out of college or or college age, post college age, you know, come to New York from all over the wherever the globe. But man, they get in there and they'd rent some place for seventy five bucks a month and rip rip out all the old crap and throw out the old boxes and crap that'd been there for thirty years and and they'd start something. Mm -hmm. They'd start a rehearsal space or they'd start a little club or they'd you know, I mean things could be done for for, for very little dough. Yeah. And everything was walking distance from one another. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I mean, I know things moved out to Brooklyn and to Williamsburg and to Greenpoint and all this stuff. But one thing that the East Village had at that time was um, it was all very, very walking distance. You just w stumble from one place to another. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? And and there was just there was just a, a lot of activity that was happening because there was space where people could get cheap apartments and a lot of them were funky, you know, but people patched them together. A lot of landlords were like open to, you know, letting people fix their places up for less rent. Well, there was even government subsidies to that, too. You know, I tried to get into those, but that never materialized for me. Uh, you know, those there was like HUD apartments and stuff that uh, and then there was places where people would uh, uh, actually um you know, squat, but sure. but even even other than that, there was just regular 
buildings that had spaces in them that were underutilized and and there was a whole crew of people that were ready to come in and and turn them into stuff and now they're all popped out long long gone i I guess what i'm kind of arriving at and sort of curious about uh gentrification as it is now and this is a music podcast and we'll talk about music Ah. Uh, feels you gotta live right feels grim to me in that there needs to be through lines like intergenerational through lines like russ and daughters is a perfect example yeah uh and it it it's thriving it sustains itself and you go in there and you can have the same experience that someone had yeah 75 years ago yeah and when you take marshall's and you take target yeah and these are all businesses that are open and you just plop them down yeah. it just eradicates that yeah and then it feels like a desert or something. Well, it's become kind of suburban, you know. It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, and I think that, you know, I read an article, I don't know if you saw this in the Times about Forlini's, you know, the Italian restaurant uh-huh. over there on uh, Baxter Street. Right. And all the hipsters the are court. going there now. All the hipsters going there, you yeah. know, because they found something that's got, a, a, a real flavor of New York, you know, that's got the old grimy, right. you know, stuff that everybody looks for, you know. And I mean, when I came here, every, everything was like that, yeah. you know. And uh, So when you came here, you showed up with the horn with the idea of yeah. playing music in New yeah, York City. that's right. Being a working musician. Yes, sir. What? <laughs> so growing up on Long Island, yeah. you played the sax by choice. Yes. You were listening to jazz? Yes. Well, what happened first, of course, was that in fourth grade, uh, they made me play clarinet, even though I wanted to play sax. So I did start on clarinet. Maybe I have a good embouchure because of that. I'll never know. But uh, I struggled with the clarinet. And, uh, you know, by ninth grade, there was a jazz band in school. And that's when I was really pissed that I couldn't be in the jazz band playing clarinet because, of course, it was, you know... Uh, you know, five saxes, four trumpets, trombones, no clarinets, you know. So that's when I switched to alto. Mm. And all of a sudden, the lights turned on, and I loved it, and I played it all the time, and I was on my way. And I was, uh, you know, uh, switched to tenor in 10th grade, probably, started playing flute in 10th grade, got to soprano by you wanted 12th to play grade. all these different horns yeah yeah and, i was i was loving it yeah and i left the clarinet you know i only picked up the clarinet again much later because i realized it was a great instrument and i wanted to play it uh but i really was fundamentally tenor soprano and flute that was always kind of my real the instruments that i really played and that's what i came to new york playing you know i own a barry i own an alto uh, but those are my those are my main horns with the clarinet. And who were the main guys as a kid that you were listening to? Well, I hadn't discovered everybody yet, but I loved Rassan. Yeah, that makes sense. And I loved Roland Kirk. Uh huh. I mean, I loved Rassan. I loved Youssef Latif. Uh huh. And I loved Farrell Sanders. So and pretty, I saw them all. They're all pretty far out dudes. I loved that stuff. Yeah. And uh, I loved their crossover stuff because I was. A child of the 60s into the 70s and i loved when youssef he had that record detroit and he played funky stuff and uh blowing jazz but also you know early 70s band with funky guys and funk arrangements and playing improvising over that stuff and um 
uh, Rasan always had a taste for playing pop tunes, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was a little bit of crossover in there. And that yes, it, there was there was plenty of straight ahead jazz, but there was also uh, grooves that I recognized from being a child of the '60s and '70s. You know, funk, R&B. Uh, there was crossover there that was appealing to me. And I also really liked, you know, I was a kid, I liked rock and the Grateful Dead and all mm-hmm. this other stuff, but I always gravitated to stuff with horns. Like, I liked Traffic, you know, I liked Van Morrison, sure. you know, because they had horns in them, and, you know, and I would try to learn those solos and play along with those records and stuff. And, of course, jazz came along, and I, you know, I really started to play bebop when i when i was first i suppose freshman in college is when i really you know started to to get the opportunity to play i maybe i started in high school but it was kind of just soloing in big band you know it wasn't like learning charlie parker heads that that started in college you know when i actually started to to learn how to play some some bebop and some Mm -hmm. more sophisticated changes and you know get around a bit but um that's that's kind of where it started for me. Yeah, I mean, and your, the piano that's in your apartment now, you had in the house growing up? <laughs> yes. I always played a little piano, but unfortunately I took lessons for a year and quit. And uh, I regret that, of course, because the piano is so great. But I, I, I can get around on the piano and I, you know, I can write music and play chords. And uh, But I'm not really a legit, you know, I, sure. I, I don't sit down and play left hand, right hand stuff the way I should. But uh, but it sounds like growing up in Long Island in the '60s, dad working at the UN, taking music lessons. It sounds kind of like an idyllic, uh, you know, Jewish upbringing. Music in the house. It was it was it was pretty idyllic, you know, in a certain way. It also, I really, you know, I know that my friends and people that grew up in Manhattan that ended up at, at Manhattan at, uh, uh, you know, music and art and, Mm -hmm. you know, were, were being, you know, were, were working and, and, and being mentored by some of these amazing people. I think it was a much richer experience than I had. I think mine was kind of white bread out there. It was a darker white bread than most because, uh, I, I really sought out different stuff. And, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't so bland, but, uh, it it was kind of idyllic, but at the same time, it, it had a suburban quality to it in that, you know, my, uh, you you know, you had to kind of stretch to find stuff that wasn't just right down the pipe, you know? Yeah. That's exciting though, no? What? That... Having to stretch to find the things that speak well, to you. Well, it was. It you know, I really, I guess, I got to give myself a little credit for reaching out. You know, I did get into the city as a kid. Um, you know, before I could drive, even you know, I'd go take the train in, and I'd walk around Washington Square Park, and I'd go to stuff and see stuff, and you know, but I, uh, I, I had some decent experiences, uh, but it, it wasn't like I was rubbing elbows with with anybody that that was sure really like you know i listened to crack hour who was studying with you know that the podcast you did sure. i listened to a little and you know 
studying with Leon Rushinoff at 13. And, I mean, you that's know, a pretty unique experience. And But I know, I mean, you know, Tony Lewis, the drummer I love to use, yeah. was at Music and Art, and Ray Vega. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of guys, and I, I think of the experience they had, and I... I I think it's amazing. You yeah, know? I mean, city kids are weird. I, you know, just this morning, I ran. You know, Elliot Sharp lives across the street. Yeah, I ran into Elliot as I was out walking my dogs. And we were talking, and he said, "Man, I got to take my kids to look at high schools." Uh, and and we joked because, like, growing up, it was like high school. You just went to high, whatever high school was in your county, I know. in your in your district, you know. And you know, these kids are thirteen. No, and I, they're I, auditioning. You know, they have to think about their careers. I am. I am. It. I'm not missing. Uh, a thing of of that in terms of the experience that my kids are getting i feel is extremely rich uh i just went to the junior high as we called it then and the high school in my neighborhood it was okay but it was not very interesting and they they, they tried to do some stuff but it was kind of kind of bland sure. and and uh when i think of what my daughter is getting uh she's she's a ninth grader now uh and she's up at uh the high school of math science and engineering up it's called hsmse it's on the campus of city college yeah you know i mean she's she's rubbing elbows and seeing stuff that is just fantastic so you're able to give to her what you wish you had had in a sense yeah, yeah. i mean i know that <clears throat> there isn't a a big backyard and uh or Man, not New so York big city. but you know look out the window here this is the best backyard there is i know we and and they recognize this. I yeah. mean, you know, she knows that 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 she is already, you know, barely fourteen, and she is taking the subways all over the city. I mean, these kids in the suburb, if mommy isn't driving them to somewhere, or daddy isn't taking them to somewhere, then they're not going. You know what I mean? Or you know, she's uh, she's very independent already, and and these are these are these are rich things that these kids yeah. have here, and. Uh, you know so so going back so when you arrived in the east village 10th street yeah um in the late 70s i mean were you like thank god i'm out of long island yes this is rough and tumble but yes i was just the happiest guy alive i was just delirious i i mean i would hang out you know i'd take my horn and i'd go to the tin palace yeah which was a great club it was on uh bowery and uh uh I guess it was third. You would take your horn down there to play? Yeah, I'd try to sit in, and I would get to sit in sometimes. Who'd they you had sit certain in with? nights. I sat in with one of my favorites was with Philly Joe's band. Are you serious? And and they played Killer Joe, because that was his theme song, yeah. Benny Golson's Killer Joe. Yeah. And I fucking played the shit out of that bridge. <laughs> and motherfuckers went crazy. Yes. Yes. And I was, you know, 23, whatever. I wasn't a kid anymore, but everybody stumbled over that. You know, everybody could play the 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 part that's just, you know, C to B flat. Right. Everybody would do that. And then the bridge come along. It's like, oh, train wreck next. Thank you. But, you know, I remember once I, I went up there and, you know, I fucking made those changes like nobody's business. And, and, and everybody was like, oh, shit, this motherfucker could play, you know. Yeah. And I, that was really exciting. With what Philly what a Joe. great groove with Philly Joe, man. Yeah. That, you know, that is the thing about New York is like you can come face to face with. Oh, God. The, the, they all played there. I mean, yeah. Pharaoh, Leon Thomas played there. 
uh, you know, it was amazing. I remember the Bridgewater Brothers Band used to play there a lot. I was thinking about them the other day. And, uh, oh, just, just everybody. And we would get to play. We would get to sit in, you know, yeah. and... Uh, uh, you know, it was, it was, you'd really, you take your licking just like everybody did. And you didn't get to come in and always play a tune that you knew. And, you know, uh, I remember getting lost on I'll Remember April and, uh, really? you know, having to beg to play the next week because, you know, you got lost. I fucking forgot the changes, and, you know. Uh oh, where am I? Wait, who, who who was on the bandstand that night? Was it Philly Joe? There was a woman named Kim Foreman. No, it was not Philly Joe. There was a woman named Kim Foreman who was a piano player and uh, strong player, and uh, she had uh, some kind of maybe she played with with her group, and then there was an open jam session, you know, okay. or kind of open, yeah. I, I don't remember exactly, but she had the wonderful opportunity of having to to uh, be the uh, rhythm section for every, uh, you know, person that wanted to try to cut their teeth, you know, and bless her heart, she hung in there, you know, but, uh, you know, I guess she was kind of like the uh, the one who would let you sit in or not, you know, and uh, so I sort of... I mean, kind of like Smalls is now, where it was. Yeah. And there used to be a lot of those places. Oh, yeah, man. You know, there was one up on, I'm going back, but there was one up called Clifford's on Uh 72nd Street. And, you know, I remember going up there and jumping in a cab with with somebody who was a jazz lover, and he took me and another tenor player up there. And, you know, we'd, we'd go to these places and, you know, try to sit in and, make some noise and uh get on to the next thing i remember ron burton co- complimented me once over at uh uh at tin pa- at, at, at uh, tin palace and said yeah you got a good sound man you know who were the first guys that you started playing with that you know were peers and hmm, exploratory that's a good question well my first big gig quote unquote was at the folk city jazz night and it was uh, September of 79, and I, it was the first time I had actually gotten a gig as a leader. And I used uh, Oscar Derrick Brown Jr., who's uh, a New Yorker, a very fine piano player, and a bassist, Errol Walters, who I knew from Montreal, who was living in New York at the time, and um, a drummer, Cornell Fowler, who uh, I think is back in L.A. He was Oscar's friend. And we had little rehearsals, and we played a couple of my originals and some of Oscar's originals. And I think we played uh, a May by Joe Henderson. And uh, that was, you know, my first band, you know. And I always was very intent on working with my own... Uh, playing my own music and trying to have my own bands i was not i wanted to to you know sort of tour be in famous bands but i was really not that motivated to be in other people's bands you wanted to be a band leader i wanted to be a band leader and i wanted to make my own music and that was kind of a thrust you know uh for me and what happened soon after that then I had a little band I called the Raw Adults, which was kind of for two gigs. But eventually, by 81, I formed my own band called Foreign Legion. Mm-hmm. And that was a 
more funky kind of noise band that I had with uh, uh, bass, electric bass, drums, and guitar, and me and trumpet. The first trumpet I called uh, Bernstein, Stephen Bernstein, my, my longtime cohort. Uh, and and he couldn't make it and so I called Roy Campbell and Roy Campbell was actually in the band and even made my first recording with me for a year or two and then eventually he couldn't do it and then I got Steven in the band and he was in the band until the end I did it until almost almost 1993 I just got tired of trying to whack at that one but that Wait, who was else a, was in the group? It was Steve Bernstein. Originally it was me Roy. and Steve, and the whole concept was tenor and trumpet up front with mm-hmm. a noisy rhythm section. There was a, a guitarist named William Brown who lived in the East Village, who was very good. A, a very uh, uh, he knew how to play jazz and changes, uh, but he had a very uh, uh, interesting sound, kind of like many interesting guitar players like Sonny Chirac. Okay. Or, other people that were around that you know he used a wah-wah pedal and he but he could play he knew he knew his changes he knew his his stuff but he had a a good uh, you know interesting concept and i had various drummers uh in the early days but uh michael cardi was a local drummer that i met i played with sahib sarbib's multinational jazz orchestra Uh which was where i met everybody and that was about 1980. I mean, there was everybody, Joe Ford, uh, oh God, all kinds of people. It was a yeah, large... Guillermo Franco, yeah, it yeah. was a huge band. So he was a bass player, composer, and we played some pretty big gigs. We made a record at the Public Theater, and, and anyway. But uh, eventually I had Zach Alford in the band, uh, who was pretty kind of hot drummer for about the last 25 years, playing with everybody from... Springsteen to you know I don't know whatever but he's great 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 and uh, we really kicked butt we played all of the rock clubs as an an avant funk jazz avant garde jazz funk band this is the early eighties yes so the lounge lizards were going at the same time yes so there was sort of you know it wasn't. So unheard of no. to be able to move between these different clubs no. and scenes. No, this is this is what we were all, you know, doing. We were trying to forge a new music yeah. where we could play improvisational music that was informed by jazz, but that was we were children of the East Village and we were you know, we were downtowners. I mean, I yeah. wasn't inspired by what was happening over at Sweet Basil and First of all, I couldn't get in there anyway, because right. that was all sewn up. Those gatekeepers were pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was just a whole other crowd that was very set up in that in that scene, and, and we were younger than them, and we weren't part of that. And uh, uh, so we forged this music that was... And, and anyway, to make a long story short, by about 1987, uh, a, a record came out, an LP called This Is The Funk. And it was kind of like our coming of age as, uh, you know, we had a track on it and Tomas Donker's band called IQ had a track on it and Defunct had a track on it and James White had a track wow. on it. And uh, it wasn't no wave. It was this kind of avant-garde funk. And, yeah. it, and it, it, it never really got out there, sadly. I mean, we killed ourselves for that stuff, but it kind of died, you know, which was kind of sad because, uh, you know, we all had 
really high hopes. But the music industry wasn't really into it. You know, they they were well on their way into hip hop. Was 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 and and you know, kind of post disco dance music, electronic music was was kind of really starting. Well, it was there. It was it was evolving and. There was just the technological music was much more ascendant than yeah. us. We were still just like acid jazz, just like other people today. We're trying to play our instruments, man. We 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 still wanted to play rhythm sections. You know, yeah. we didn't, didn't want to just play over loops or I mean, or use you know uh, uh, just have electronic drum loops right. and 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 drum machines and stuff. We wanted to. We were bands. We were coming out of jazz, but we were funky. And and it was noisy shit. It was good. Like this jackhammer that's driving me crazy right now. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that, by the way. That's all right. But when people talk about the <clears throat> New York City of of the early '80s, and you know, it you it's it's always these things are all talked about together. Like you have like Madonna and Beastie Boys coming out. Yeah. You have Lounge Lizards and the Knitting Factory getting yeah. started. Yeah. You have all these things happen or Basquiat, just all these yeah. different worlds. But people always talk about it like it was just one thing. Did it feel like one thing? No, not at all. Uh, it was it was very segmented, uh, but it crossed over. I mean, we got to play at Danceteria, which was the big, cool club where yeah. you know Madonna, you know, got her tracks played by Jellybean Benitez, and we did play the Mud Club, which you know was at the very beginning, the end of the Mud Club in the very beginning of our band. We played CBGBs many, many times. But there was, you know, very different kind of camps. I mean, there was the sort of post-disco camp that was turning into, you know, the full-fledged dance music. And, and there was hip-hop and stuff. And it was kind of, everything was kind of crossing over a little bit. But, you know, we were we were sort of in the uh, new jazz camp. Yeah. You, you know, the post-jazz that was trying to use... We were coming from... These were people that... I mean, the funniest thing was there was a lot of bands then that were that were naive bands or whatever they called them. No Wave. DNA. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if that's a perfect example, but there were a lot of bands that were basically made of people who had picked up their instruments last week right you know and they were colorful people they were artistic people right they had great looks right and they had clever ideas yeah and interesting names of songs and stuff that made it you know very creative yeah and they were but here we were able to 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 play giant steps not that it mattered but you know we were kind of like whoa what's going on here yeah. you know you know and uh it that was one of the you know kind of disparate elements where you had uh people who were you know kind of playing in the same milieu where some of them were very creative naive players or whatever you want to call them, you know, people that hadn't played their instrument much, but were very creative. And then you had other people who, you know, played their instruments, you you know, or were 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 uh, educated musically, had perhaps learned in college or could play sophisticated music. Um, and they were also trying to forge a new music. I mean, I was in the microscopic septet for uh, throughout the 80s. Uh, it, I wasn't the first tenor player. I, I 
got the chair after John Hagen. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Micros were, were an interesting band. Always, you know, kind of B B movie music. Yeah, things that went from a funky part to a Latin part to a swing part to an avant garde part that would stop on a dime. And one of my I was thinking about this the other day. One of my favorite times was we'd had this thing where we would go nuts. Everybody would play all this wild, wild stuff and would stop on a dime. Really, you know, because we were all counting, even though we were going nuts. And the funniest thing was is that sometimes people would be sitting at the table talking, and all of a sudden the music would stop, and their voices would be very evident, and they'd be saying, and then I said, blah, 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 you know, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden the music stopped out of nowhere. They couldn't possibly have expected it would, and whatever they're saying is audible to everybody in the club, or at least the band, so we'd have some funny times where people would be caught saying some, just some stuff. You know, but is, I mean, music... I'm just thinking about what you're saying about, you know, being confronted with, oh, not everyone is so into musicianship. <laughs> I mean, is it, to me, the issue always is creating music as, as, as a, work, working on your music is a matter of synthesizing your interests and having a value system. And whatever that value system is, which is like, you know, I, I'm really, it's a number of things. It's, I'm really interested in being technically proficient on my horn. I'm really interested in engaging with the tradition of whatever music I'm working on or whatever my instrument is, you know? And similar to like what I was saying earlier about having like these through lines in the neighborhood, the more myopic those things become, the less musical it seems to me. So I could hear like, I you know I was listening to I, I I listen to shit all the time so I was listening to uh, Cardi B the other day mm-hmm. checking it out and it's like I can say objectively and someone jumped on my case about this the other day it's not music <laughs> it's not music and it's got nothing to do with the fact that it's programmed beats or that it's a woman or a person of color it's got nothing to do with any of that it's that it just sits there without much. From what I can tell, there isn't a lot of input going into the output. It's kind of like one or two ingredients. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you one thing that I was thinking about when you were just talking, and that this is this is kind of one of my little pet peeves, which is that when we, when I came to New York, and you know, you're talking about late seventies, early eighties, uh, we had many disparate streams in our music yeah i could play traditional jazz you know what i mean meaning well not not trad jazz of the 20s we're talking but i mean i could i could play changes you know what i mean i could play some bebop tunes i could play jazz 50s hard bop whatever you call it i had been influenced by avant-garde music you know like avant-garde jazz like coltrane and you know, Pharaoh Sanders music of like one chord uh, wailing, you know, for a whole side. Uh, I had been influenced by rock and by guitar music mm-hmm. that, that had come in in, you know, the 60s and the counterculture stuff and movie music, you know, and, yeah. you know, orchestral music that like, like what the micros were doing, funny stuff that, you know, TV themes. I mean, we were the TV generation. So, yeah. you know, we had heard all of this kind of funny music, you know, that was, but I'm bump. 
bum, 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 all these, you know, whatever the hell it is, you know. Yeah. So we were trying to synthesize this. We were trying to use it all. You know, I was trying to put it all in my music because not all, but anything that was of interest to me, I was trying to, to put it together. And we all were. And I, I have to say that today in, in you, know, you know, it seems like so many of these guys uh, can play circles around a lot of us. You know, they come out of college, but where's the individuality? You know, where's the uh, where's the mixing of genre? You, you know what I mean? Where, yeah. where's the, the trying to make sense of, of what's going on today with, with what, you know, went on historically. Uh, I just think that we, uh, really had, had a lot of interest in finding our own voices and combining stuff <clears throat> that that we heard. I mean, I happen to love the '50s tenor players, like you, you know, the old rock and rollers. Like uh, you know, they played with a lot of gusto and and a lot of you know, like Sam Butera and all these other great guys. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted that in my music too, and I wanted Lester Young in my music, and I wanted Rasson Roland Kirk in my music, and I wanted David Newman in my music, and you know, all these different people had influenced me, and I don't know, today it just sounds like everybody's kind of a lot more, you know, monochromatic, and just, they, they, they don't have as, as, as much of a wide, they're not trying to put as much into their music from a lot of different streams, and... uh I didn't exactly talk about Card, you know, Cardi B, but I mean, right. I'm, what I'm talking about is what I'm hearing out there and what I think we were struggling with when well, yeah. my generation came here. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about relates more to us than say something like Cardi B. I was using Cardi B as like an extreme example. Yeah, but certainly, I mean, you know, to really arrive at a sound takes a lifetime. Yeah, and that's the fun, and that's the goal. Yeah. and you know, you listen to any. Anybody we're going to call the greats, you know, yeah. whether it's, you know, Bach or you yeah. know, Zorn or whatever, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's yeah. like this is a lifetime of work. Yeah. Um, but certainly that, that, that challenge of what triggers your imagination and how do you personalize it and then externalize it is, I don't know, maybe it is being lost. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to... I get scared all the time. Like, am I aging really fast? Because <laughs> I feel really dismissive of a lot of popular culture. Well. <sighs> so I want to ask you about leading a band. Because you said you always wanted to lead a band. And then what were your earlier experiences um, uh, as a band leader in New York? Oh, God. Because talk very about a funny. lifetime of work. Very funny. It, 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 I worked very, very hard at it uh, in terms of getting gigs uh, we used to have those sound checks. I'd bring people back to my apartment. I'd make dinners for everybody. I mean, not like extravagant, sure. but we'd come back, we'd eat, we'd go, we'd play the gig, we'd come back after the gig and hang out till one o'clock in the morning listening to the tape of the gig. And, uh, you know, we'd have rehearsals and I'd... It was interesting. It was... When I first started, it was basically... I, I think I would write down like the lines for the the horns and the rest was was just kind of learning you know like saying oh this one's in b flat and then it goes to blah blah whatever but it was a here's a funny story for you when in the um kind of later 80s we used to play 
a place called Gonzales y Gonzales, which is actually still there, I believe. It's yeah. on Lower Broadway, just above Houston. And uh, the guy that used to book it, uh, Mark uh, Campbell, uh, he would call me on Monday as he was putting in his ad into the Village Voice, which, of course, was the paper where everybody you know, read about who was playing yeah. where. It was the the Bible. And he was putting his, his, his thing in at the last minute. He'd say, can you play Wednesday, you know, or can you play Thursday? And I realized quickly that if I said, I'll get back to you, I have to check with my guys, the gig was gone. Yeah. So it was at that point that what I started to do was say yes. If I could do it, I would say yes. And gradually I started to write out lead sheets and arrangements that my band was playing so that if Stephen Bernstein couldn't make it, I'd get John Mulcairin to make it or I'd get Frank London to make it or something, you know? And if my guitar player couldn't make it, I'd I'd get someone else. And 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 what happened was is that I started to develop the ability to uh, have uh, different people playing my music because a lot of the rock thing, you know, is that it's it's really personality and mm -hmm. specific person driven. Yeah, that everybody, if if you know, you, you they're in the band and you're in my band and you quit the band, you know, and then it just became. I realized I said, you know, that format is not really going to work. I need if I want to play my music, I need to make my music clearer and i need to have people in my band that can read music you know because some of my rhythm section people were not really readers in the early day you know they were really wilder avant-garde players like the bass player i had was not really a reader so eventually and then i i i wrote you know uh my charts and and that was a kind of a learning experience for me where i and, and another learning experience for me uh, was realizing that as much as everybody loved my band, because we really had a great time, we played a lot of fun gigs, we played the Ritz, and, mm -hmm. you know, we were striving, you know, we got that record out, and we played, you know, little festivals, and, you know, we were really hoping to get some support from the industry and to make a real record, you know, not just one cut, and, you know, this was, this was what we were working towards. And um, I realized that my band was really, really important to me. And everybody loved to be in my band. But they all wanted to lead their own bands. Mm -hmm. And that my band was more important to me than it was to, to the guys yeah. in my band. Yeah. And this was a kind of a heartbreaking, heartbreaking reality. It wasn't such a heartbreaking thing, but it was a big reality lesson for me that... Yes, they loved being in my band. And yes, they did love all the things we did. But they wanted to be in their own bands and they wanted to be in other bands. And so it was a learning experience for me that 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 I take today, you know, that I realize that uh uh people really enjoy playing with me and uh yet I get the most thrill out of playing my own music and everybody else really enjoys it mm -hmm. but i can't expect it to be the apex of their ex musical experience 
You know what I mean? And as and sometimes it is. Sometimes we play a great gig and it's like this was an amazing gig, you know. Does it feel disappointing or it's just No, it's just a reality that yeah. that that my music and playing my music and leading my band is 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 more of a blast for me uh-huh. than for my sidemen. And I think that that's a recognizable thing. And even though everybody loves playing and we have a great time and some guys don't lead their bands, I just have, I just came, because when you're, when you're really working hard and you're sort of an old school band and you're schlepping around and you're putting up posters and you're making t-shirts and, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're hopeful that everybody is like really on board with you. Well, I mean, I'll tell you something I see a lot. Uh, I'm 38 and I've been in New York since I was 22, sort of navigating different musical worlds. And something I've seen a lot and I've had issues with it, trying to figure it out is the cultures of, rock music the culture of free improvisation the culture of jazz and how a band is run and how people get paid and and everything else they're wildly different and a lot of people bang their heads against the wall trying to figure out how so i got a friend he's he's a composer he's a really deep composer and he channels his compositions through a rock band and he's frequently frustrated because the musicians his band is it's like a revolving door and at the end of the day, what he's frequently met with is people saying, hey, if I'm a sideman, you got to pay me like a sideman. Yeah. You know? And it's at odds with rock culture, which is we all take an even cut and we all, you know, yeah. we all fucking schlep gear. Yeah. We, you know? Yeah. This and, is what I'm talking about. This is what yeah. I'm talking about. It's because, still a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And because when you are of that rock culture thing... Uh, which is kind of what I'm alluding to in saying that with my band in like the early 80s when we were putting up posters and we're schlepping around and we're making the sound check and we're doing all that stuff, there is that culture of we're all going to be famous and rich together, <laughs> which of right. course doesn't happen. You Slightly know. elusive. Slightly elusive, just ever so elusive. Uh-huh. But that is what is the driving thing. And gradually it was my recognizing but first of all through that period even early on i always paid guys if no matter what i got paid at the door even if it was you know 40 50 bucks they knew before the gig they knew before they were the gig with. that they were going to walk with right and i was clear about that right. and i believe in that to this day i don't call people for anything and and not tell them what the what what the gig pays i think it's 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 and and still to this day, people call me, oh, and uh, can you make blah, blah? And I'm like, yeah. And, and you know, and, and then you find out, you know, and then maybe you have to ask them what they're going to pay you. Or, Which is really a shitty know, position to put a, someone it's in. It's a very shitty position. And I've, I've always been very proactive about that. I always paid guys and... And uh, I, I always took responsibility for that. And I would take the loss if there was a loss. And sometimes there was, because what if it's a rainy night? Or what if nobody shows up? Or what if anything? But that is the culture I'm talking about. Yeah. And you've hit it, you know, which is the rock band approach, which is we're all in this together. But of course, that's really flawed, too, because we know that the person that writes the songs is, is going to make all the money. This is why they all go crazy. All the guys that are, you know, old rockers who were one guy's got no money and one guy's rich. You know what I mean? Because he ended up getting the writing and the publishing for writing the songs. And the other guys, 
you know, put in tremendously, uh, 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 you know, in terms of crafting the grooves and uh, adding parts and making arrangements and add, having great ideas and not getting any writing a credit because this MF wrote the lyrics. You know I mean, but to me, this all speaks to what makes a great band leader, which honestly, I think nine and a half out of ten people don't have what it takes to be a great band leader or even a decent band leader and it is it's more than just writing tunes and and booking the rehearsals and and guaranteeing everyone you know a bit of bread it's really like it's 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 looking out for people it's kind of getting inside their head to get them to give the best performance possible to to light a fire under their ass to have them create a situation where they are psyched to be on stage with you yeah. you know and and it's sort of like shaping I, I hope that this is one of my strong points. I mean, I have people that played with me and continue to play with me for years and years. I love them dearly. I treat them as best I possibly can. Uh, I really, really value them. And there's a couple of things. I really try to pick people that I love. Yeah. And I love the way they play. And I do my damnedest not to tell them what the fuck to play. Yeah. Because people hate that. And, of course, we have to work on things at times. Sure. But basically, and aside from a small tweak here and there, if you pick the right guy and his head is in the right place musically, hopefully you do not have to browbeat anybody and you don't have to say, uh, do this, do that, do this, do that. Because that, it just, it just makes people you know, crazy and uh, unless they're getting paid a lot of money uh, or, or or they just think that you're just the, the greatest genius that ever walked the earth, they usually, something falls out of their playing when you start to yeah. over-dictate what to do. Yeah. And I really, really try not to do that. Uh, I really try, that's why I also try to really write good charts now i feel that when you say good charts you mean like readable yeah informative uh-huh i feel that that's part of my respect thing with cats because yeah. i can i can get them to do what i want without having to kind of tell them mm -hmm. if i can put on the page what i'm looking for well, then everybody gets to see it for themselves and interpret it the way. And then maybe we say, oh, well, could we try a little like this or like that? But that's that's kind of respectful. When you put a good chart in front of someone that they can read and that is is clear. Uh, I, I mean, I did my last record, you know, Chauffeur Road Versus, in one day. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I used Brad Jones on bass and Tony Lewis on drums and Mark Rebo on guitar. I mean, and I use them all, especially Rebo. I mean, he's not—he's—he's he's not someone that that normally plays with me. But these are tough times. I didn't have—I I didn't do a rehearsal for that gig. If I went you, into you, the studio without a rehearsal, and we made a record that day. And if I, might, if I say so myself, it came out really good. I love I, it. I'll just say, if you're going to make a record without a rehearsal, you probably want to call people like Rebo and Brad Jones. That's it. <laughs> That's exactly why I did that. I mean, some and of the deepest I, cats around. Yeah, and they're just the best. And Tony Lewis is is yeah, is, is among them. Yeah, and and you know they're all amazing. And I also wrote damn good charts. Yeah, that were clean, that were organized, and and that we could really work with, and that we could 
play down. Sometimes we didn't even play down the whole chart. We just play down enough to get going because I love a first take. Because first takes are when you you really experience the tune for the first That's time, right. and sometimes you play your best shit on the first take. That's sometimes right. you make a mistake on the head, or you or the, the something in the structure is wrong. But you know that that first impression, uh, uh, imp- improvisation uh, on you know your first impression is often the best one. And sometimes what happens, I find, is that I might have my my first impression. Uh, might might be that first solo, and then what happens is you go back the second time or the third time, and you 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 have a you have to fight against the uh, the desire to reiterate that thing you found the first time, and that can be oh that's poison that's poison that's gonna fuck you up because because you don't want to do that you want to keep coming to it fresh, but fresh is fresh <laughs> you know it's hard, but anyway so back to you know. There's, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but out there in Radioland, there's a, a great uh, document that's floating around on the internet of Monk's, Monk wrote it in his free hand of his, his uh, uh, list of things to do and not do as a band leader. Have you ever seen that? No, but... It's, it's really awesome. How, how long is the list? Uh, maybe it's like a page... I got like, a list the other day from a band leader. Was it of things like like that you were supposed to do maxims. on his gig? No, just maxims. Oh, maxims. L- life maxims. Well, unbelievable. I... <laughs> really? <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like just line after line of like if you're the best cat in the band, you're in the wrong band. <laughs> oh, as the band leader. Just yeah, 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 yeah just, it, just music, it, it, music, yeah, 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 music. Use people that are better than you. Yeah, yeah. or even you know, or if even if you're the hot shot in someone's band, it's like yeah, you know, it's yeah. not very challenging. Let's say yeah, yeah. No, uh, these are these are you know, being a band leader is 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 a very uh, uh, involved. But man, we know people like <clears throat> it's it's about support and love. Yeah, it's about bread and it's about creating good gig. But like, I know people. And man, this is like, I remember the first time I observed this, it made me question if I ever wanted to play music in front of people again, (laughs) where, no, I mean it, like, uh, I've seen artists, musicians who lead bands, and they hire people to play in their bands, and those people don't give a fuck about being there, and they talk bad about the guy behind his back, and I cannot imagine a more poisonous relationship. Yeah, that's terrible. And uh, It scared me, I'm still kind of like... It spooked by it, and it yeah. makes me nervous about putting together musical situations because yeah. somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm like, "Are these guys laughing at me behind my back?" Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, there is a certain kind of sideman that kind of, for one reason or another, feels obligated to uh, uh, diss the leader. You know, maybe it's because they're not a leader, or maybe it's. Uh, because they're just doing it for the money and they are uh, really, they think the leader is a jerk or whatever, but it is poisonous. And, and it's, you really, we're in this for the music and for the love, you know what I mean? And of course we have to make a living, you know, so money wends its way in, in this nasty way. But basically if you're not enjoying the personalities and, the cats that you're with 
there's going to be problems unless there's money. If you're just doing it for the money, you know, like going out. But even if you are just doing it for the money, I mean, show up, do your job, yeah. shake the hand, yeah. and dip. Don't, you know, yeah, create no. this, like, toxic no. culture. No, of... you can't do that. You can't do that. It's, 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 it's very toxic, and it's better to not do the gig if you are, are, are going to be that way about it. Because yeah. it just doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Well, so you've done a lot of, you know, I was looking at your website, I was looking at your discography. I mean, you've done a lot of sessions where you were just a hired man, yeah? Totally. Michael Jackson, no? Yeah. Did you meet Michael? No. It's a remix. <laughs> okay. I did a lot of remixes in in, in the, the uh, 90s. Uh, I was, like, working a lot. It was great with uh, David Morales, Frankie Knuckles, a little bit with Little Louie Vega, and Frankie others. Knuckles. And another guy named Louie Louie vega got very confusing with all the louis but anyway uh the mafia <laughs> yeah yeah i know but uh so i played on a on a remix okay of a michael jackson thing that ended up on a legitimate michael jackson record which one which record blood on the dance floor i don't know it, well whatever but it, it ain't was, thrilling <clears throat> well it's 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 a, a lot of his music yeah. that you know his favorite remixes. You know, right? But it's a Michael Jackson record. Wait, but what I'm, I'm curious about, like being as we were just talking about the distinction between sidemen you want on the gig and sidemen you want to avoid, the skill of showing up at the studio and delivering a track that you know was that a skill that you had to learn over time, or did you feel pretty good showing up day one? Well, I really, I I had some some pretty good success in that thing i played on this track the whistle song which is considered one of the most famous dance instrumentals of all time it's still played uh you know and i didn't get any writing on it but it's like a song length flute solo and you know as they called it and i mean one of the things that i did with those tracks which is why i feel i was successful is that i really came in and i really tried to listen to what was going on there and to come up with things that were uh made sense with 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 the track in other words i didn't try to dump some sophisticated bebop lick on something that wasn't calling for it right the whistle song is literally two changes right c major nine f major nine yeah you know and i was playing flute on it and i played some really nice stuff on it and I played rhythmically because the music was very rhythmic, you know. And and but I I didn't uh, try to you know move that in a direction that wasn't called for. You know what I mean? I I basically tried to do the gig that made sense with the cat's music, and uh, I think that any good studio player does that. But I was improvising. I wasn't like I was coming in and reading charts. I mean, I was putting on the headphones and reacting to these guys' music, you yeah. know? And so I was improvising and, you know, kind of composing on the spot stuff. And, I mean, that's... I had to come up with stuff that... Obviously, I did come up with stuff that worked with their tracks and that they loved because they kept calling me. You know, and it wasn't because I was, uh, uh, I was trying to be as fresh as I could and to, to really react to what they had going on, you mm -hmm. know, and so I wasn't trying to over, uh, overdo what was there. Mm -hmm. If there was two changes, then that's what, what 
you know, I was going to play off of. I wasn't going to try to put in a bunch of substitutes. You, you know right, what I right, mean? Right. That, that didn't trying to serve make the sense. music. I was trying to serve the music. I will tell you one story that was very interesting. I played on with, with this guy, Louis Louis Vega, who, who uh, I, I'm on some Queen Latifah records uh, that he produced. And it was really very interesting. I'd play, he'd have a loop going, okay. right? And I would play over the loop for about five minutes. Just improvising. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'd do it again. And by the end of it, you know, I, I, I'd be I'd come up with some melodies. It was kind of like Carlos Castaneda and like a peyote, you know, you know, you know, <laughs> right? song. You know what I mean? Right. You read about like you know you you dance and you you have this frenzy, and after five hours, this song comes out, you know, or this simple melody, and it's kind of like that would finally happen because I'd I'd play you know and play and play and play, and then finally, you know, something would come out that would be just kind of a synthesis of that but anyway the funny thing was is that what he would do is after all of that he would sample yeah two or three little nuggets uh-huh. and then he'd print them through the whole track uh-huh. so he'd have three tracks of me and one of them was the lick that went right yeah. i'm talking that that's an actual riff on a latifah yeah. Track. Yeah, yeah. And and then the other one was and he would and sometimes he'd pick these really cool little things when I was like avant-garding or whatever. I was just, you know, making sounds or going or whatever I was doing. But the interesting thing was that whenever he heard that, he'd unmute it and it would pop up. Whereas other guys would just you know have me play on the track and then they'd when they wanted my voice to come up they'd li- they they'd you know raise the le- yeah. raise the, the 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 level and see what's he doing here oh that sounds good but this guy would actually say i like that little little giblet you know what uh-huh. i'm saying and then he'd take it and sample it and then whenever he wanted he'd unmute it and it would pop up yeah and that was very creative i thought yeah, you know yeah, that yeah. was a that was a very interesting approach and also the choices that he would make yeah and i play on these things two or three times and it's one thing so naturally i would i would play a, a whole variety of things but he would listen and what he would pick to use was very interesting yeah yeah you learn a lot from uh, watching people in the studio yeah and so I mean, those are a couple of stories, but obviously I would come in and really, you know, try to interact with, with what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, um, I, I've had really profound experiences in the recording <laughs> studio. Uh, and, and a lot of it for me has been watching how people work. And, you know, in my mind, everything is this mountain that you have to you know, scale the heights of to get past. And then you watch some people, they just do something without questioning it very quickly. And it's like cut print. And it's like, that was it. Yeah. And it was amazing. It's, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a skill to, to, to yeah, aim towards. It, it is. It is. The studio is, 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 is an instrument unto itself. We know that more and more now. Cause. Oh, yeah. Have you been in the studio much lately for your own stuff? Uh, I haven't been that much cause I'm just, you know, I'm kind of working on the live aspect now because I just feel that it's such a shame what's happened with CDs and everything that it costs a lot of money, 
you know, to, to do it and to get it out there. Nobody has budgets and it's just a big amount of change to try to make these records and everybody's asking for money and mm-hmm. go fund me and all this stuff. And I've just been kind of working on the live uh, because I feel that, that that's what, uh, and I'm, I'm looking to record some new material, but I yeah. haven't, I haven't figured out exactly how I'm going to do it yet. Cause I don't know if I want to do a, I just don't, I come from a, an era when GoFundMe, you know, or getting your parents to pay for a record or getting your friends to pay for a record. I mean, it just. There's, there, it can feel undignified. It, I, it was, we laughed at that shit back in the day, man. That yeah. was, that was a vanity project. And we all did them. Somebody would like, oh, I'm making a record. I can pay you 150 bucks. It's blah, blah, blah. Sure, I'll do it. You go there and it's something and it's weak as shit. And they're writing checks. And, you know, somebody's paying for this because it ain't a record company. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that was something we looked down on. I'm sorry. But yeah. I mean, you know, we 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 looked down on that. We wanted to we wanted we busted our hump to get a record company to to pay for our recordings. Now there aren't any records. Now companies. there aren't any. And I mean, it's like, what what are we going to do now? You are not making music that's like top 10. So that actually pays for itself from streaming and well, reuse. Even top 10 music doesn't pay for itself anymore. Well, I guess The bottle not. is now officially turned into something else. You know, we went through this period of time where it started with people illegally downloading stuff. Yeah, I know. And it's, it hasn't even been that for a while. Now, no, the people that are making money in music are making money... The pirates that, that, that stole the music industry. Yeah, yeah. Like, people like Beck, you know, you think about these huge artists... They're playing private parties for Spotify. No, I know. And it's, it's, it's branding, and it's this whole other thing that we don't even know what it is. And it's reuses in films and this kind of stuff and in commercials. But, I mean, even for the big, big stars, I remember you know hearing that like a lot of them, they have to sign away a lot of the stuff that they used to make outside money from. So, say you write a song, and uh, the song gets used in a commercial, and maybe they're just using the song, and they're not using the track. You know, like maybe they're reusing the song or re-recording the song or something. That was going directly to the artist. Yeah. But now, a lot of times, I've heard that in, you know, larger contracts, they have to sign that shit away, too. So you're not even getting that money, which artists used to get. So the whole thing is, is completely flipped. And I think that live is, you know, it's something that I have always stuck with. I never turned into one of those guys in, in the 90s, you know, a lot of... People basically said, I'm not gigging anymore. I'm just going to sit in my studio and try to write for films, well, try to write I mean, for that's commercials. that's a very charmed uh, position to find yourself in. Yeah, well, a lot of guys did do that, you know, and kind of were successful for a while. But I basically was a horn player, and I was like, I want a gig. I don't care if it's a wedding, whatever it is. I want to keep the horn in my mouth. I want to keep playing live music. So I've always been live, you know, yeah. and, and, and I'm still that way, and... My current, you know, one of my favorite bands projects of mine is my Ribs and Brisket Review, and I keep finding these hysterical songs, and, and you know, I mean, I swear, the last gig we played at Cornelia Street, it was the, the applause and the shrieking after, after the songs was deafening. Yeah. Honest to God, I, I, it was like, we were like looking at this crowd and going like, where did you people come from? <laughs> you, Not a bad feeling. You, you are the most awesome. I mean, it was literally, I, I had to put my hands in my ears. They were screaming. Because, Is that band playing a lot? Well, I wish we were playing more. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to find a, 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 a kind of a place where we could try to have a quasi-regular gig. We used to do... Uh, Knitting Factory, Klezmer Brunch, even though we're not a Klezmer, brand, Klezmer band, you know, and we play Cornelia Street. 
Uh, I don't know if what they're doing with those brunches over there. You know, you gotta. You should be able to find a regular gig for that band. I know it's amazing. I just have to. That's one of the things I'm working on. It's another aspect you know. of band leaders finding the gig. Yeah, and who's got time to do that? You know, I haven't like, you know, going around and get, try to get gigs and give tapes to people and follow up. And I never do that now. I just have contacts and I call people and things happen. But may, you know, you gotta. Go back and uh, do that level of work again. It's like, oh crap! I, you know? I, th- I think if I have to define musical success, it's being able to find the maximum amount of time that's actually spent on making music. It is not the emails, not the other bullshit. We spend so much time on that other stuff, and you know, I mean, just I mean, that's why one of the things that I've done lately is when I have a couple of minutes, I love to work on on. Uh, you know, writing a good chart on finale. Yeah, you, you, you know what I'm saying. I, I still don't use Sibelius, whatever. <laughs> but the point <laughs> is, is that y- you know, I love being able to develop my uh, ability to to you know have good charts that that people can really play on the gig and keep developing new material that yeah. way. You know, and and uh, that's fun for me. You know, that's kind of time spent doing something musical if it's not playing my horn or something like that i i love to put to be able to put time into that uh because it it turns out into things that i can throw in front of people and 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 do live and keep developing new material that way and Mm -hmm. so that's that's fun and that's one of the musical things i do as opposed to just running down gigs or answering emails or yeah you know all this other crap whatever all right i hope you keep the horn in your mouth I do, man. I do. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Paul. All right. That was Paul Shapiro. Great cat. Even better musician. Listen to him. Fucking shit is great. Uh, I forgot to mention at the top of the show that when we recorded this conversation, there was a lot of construction work going on, and... uh, it was pretty maddening to have to deal with while we were talking, so I imagine it was, you know, somewhat maddening to have to listen to on your end. So I apologize for that. Go to paulshapiromusic.com. Check them out. It's well worth your time. paulshapiromusic.com. And uh, if you're digging the show, rate and review it in iTunes. It helps. Tell a friend. Word of mouth, you dig. All right, that's it. Uh, I hope you guys are all hanging in, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.